You are listening to the History Respawn Podcast. The HR Podcast is made possible by support from our listeners. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting our work by going to our Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. That's www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. Hi, everyone. Welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode is a discussion episode with Rob Rath. Rob is a writer and novelist best known for his weekly column, Critical Intel, which ran most recently on Waypoint. Critical Intel often touched on historical topics, including discussions of the portrayal of the First World War in Battlefield One, and the depiction of cartel wars in Ghost Recon Wildlands. This month, Rob became a regular writer for the YouTube series Extra History, which is an offshoot of the widely popular Game Studies YouTube series Extra Credits. Extra History uses animation to present short histories of major events like the Punic Wars and world leaders like Genghis Khan. I thought this announcement made for a good opportunity to have Rob on the show to talk about history and games as well as his new job with Extra History. Rob, welcome to the show. Hey, Bob. Great to be here. So, Rob, how did you come to write on games? Uh, you know, if memory serves me correctly, you were once an undergraduate history student. Yeah, well, it's it's slightly embarrassing because uh, so many people try so hard to get into writing about games, and I did it by accident. <laughs> uh, so I I went to the University of Hawaii at Manoa. I'm, uh, I'm from Hawaii, and uh, I got a degree in... Uh, history and world religion, mostly focusing on uh, Europe, specifically crime and policing in London uh, in the 18th century. And uh, I graduated at a, at a very fortuitous time, December of 2007, mm. uh, which immediately meant, you know, decamping to Texas where there was a, a, a job I could get. Um, and rather than going to grad school, which was the original plan, I was going to work a couple of years and save up money and go to grad school. Well, December of 2007 was not a great time for uh, saving up money or going to grad school. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, was was just sort of in Austin, Texas and uh, going to film festivals and, and working at uh, at a law firm. And uh, I was reading a lot of articles online and, and eventually kind of went, you know, I think I could do this. You know, I have, I have good writing experience. Uh, I had been a, a playwright in high school and uh, uh, written for a a youth theater in Hawaii. And I was, uh, I was headed to a film festival and thought, you know, it'd be neat to get a media badge for this and get into all the uh, screenings uh, first. Cause I was, I was frequently lining up and just not getting a seat at all. <laughs> um, so I pitched a, a publication called the escapist, uh, which I read at that time. And they gave me a badge and uh, except the problem was they said, you know, we don't really want to cover this film festival, but there's a game festival that goes alongside of it. Uh, Fantastic Arcade, would you like to cover that for us? And uh, I was actually quite disappointed <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I wanted to go to the film festival. I didn't really care too much about the game festival, but I went, hey, you know, this might be interesting. Sure. Whatever. They're going to pay me for it. Um, so that was my, that was my first professional paid article uh, off my first pitch. And I really enjoyed it and, and found it utterly fascinating. It was sort of my introduction to indie games. Um, and then it was sort of off to the races. I, I 
just kept pitching things and they kept getting accepted. And then in 2012, I moved to doing a, a regular column and uh, that's hopped around a few publications. And, you know, I, I think I've been doing this about uh, eight years now. Yeah. And you've got a really amazing portfolio. I mean, uh, you've, your website has got, you know, all of your featured articles listed, but then it's got links as well to kind of the long history of critical intel, which, like you said, started at The Escapist, went on to uh, Zam.com, uh, and then uh, finished up, uh, well, maybe not finished up, to be continued uh, going forward from uh, Waypoint. And, you know, I'm just kind of wondering, I mean, what was the kind of the original intent for that column? What was... What was it that brought you kind of to write so much about history and games, realism and games? I basically started not really realizing what I was going to uh, do as a game journalist. I just had, it was writing articles. And I f realized very quickly that what I could bring to it was uh, uh, the perspective of the real world, uh, how games interact with reality, how games portray reality, uh, sometimes well, sometimes not. Um, how the real world co-ops and uses games. Uh, I, uh, I've, don't, I've never actually written about this, but you know, when I was in high school, I was in JROTC. And for one of our camps, we were taken to a um, simulated gun range at a Marine base, uh, which had everything from you know, M16s to rocket launchers that had been uh, plugged into the system so that you could you know, shoot uh, virtual targets on this movie theater-sized screen uh, called the ISMIT, the Indoor Simulated Marksmanship Trainer. Uh, so I'd sort of been introduced to the fact that there was this overlap and bleed-through between commercial video games and real military uh, hardware. But also I just, I was very fascinated by the fact that so many games were portraying politics. You know, if you think about what are the uh, highest-grossing games, it's Call of Duty, which is political. It's about war. Uh, Grand Theft Auto is about crime and policing. So it, it just seemed natural to me to write about that fact. Uh, the big breakthrough was an article I did on uh, how Ghost Recon Advanced Warfighter was banned in Juarez, Mexico, back in uh, 2008, 2009, I think, when it came out. And it was because it was unfairly portraying the city, the mayor thought, as a, as a center of violence. Now, that was just when the cartel war was starting to heat up. So it, it, it ended up being sort of prophetic in a, in a certain weird way. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that sort of led to a long series of articles. I think I've written probably f four or five now on, uh, on, on games in the cartel war. It suddenly became a hot topic. But yeah, it's... it's the whole thing was was just sort of organic. It was something that I could bring that I was not seeing in in the gaming media at that time. And thankfully now, uh, there's actually quite a lot of it. Uh, and now you have people who have actually, you know, had military experience writing about military yeah. games, which I, I love to see because that's a perspective I don't have. Mm -hmm. So let's turn to your work uh, on the extra history. Uh, and so I was wondering, could you tell us how this gig came about? Yeah, so I, I knew the Extra Credits crew from back when they were at The Escapist, um, and I would sort of meet up with them uh, at uh, South by Southwest and uh, PAX East and things like that when I was when I was speaking. And I invited uh, James, who's one of the co-creators, to speak on a panel about politics and games uh, called Borders, Bigotry, and Body Dumps. Um, and we just sort of kept in contact 
Uh, and every once in a while, he would pop up and say, hey, would you like to guest write uh, an episode? So the first one was about how when games eventually got back to uh, portraying World War II again, which we've now entered the cycle of, how they could make it a little bit more meaningful than, than the games we had seen in the past. Also, long ago, I, I did some research for them on an article about, uh, on a video about the Mexican cartel war and how uh, Call of War as the cartel portrayed it. So I've sort of been hanging out on the fringes of the show for a while. And he eventually, you know, said, hey, I'm, you know, we have a gap in our schedule. Would you like to write an episode of Extra History? And I had been uh, waiting for years, not wanting to seem too overeager. Um, and, you know, they said, what, what would you like to write it about? What just, you know, give us a give us a, a thought. I said, well, I've been begging you for years to do Kamehameha, the first king of Hawaii. So um, why I would definitely do that. So I did a two-part episode on that and just sort of increasingly did more and more uh, stuff for them freelance. That's awesome. Um, so you've written several episodes so far, including shows on the Hunt for the Bismarck, uh, the Christmas Truce during the First World War. You mentioned uh, Kamehameha as well. And I'm wondering, how are the topics determined for this show? Well, we have two different uh, sort of lines of the show. One is the mainline series, which is uh, Patreon-funded. So... We have uh, patrons that very uh, we're very very grateful that they give us money to um, to produce this show, and they actually get to choose the topics. Um, they uh, will put sort of at a certain pledge level they can suggest topics, and we'll sort of choose one out of a hat and put it up with a couple of other topics that we know we could we could do a great job on, and uh, then everyone votes. And uh, one thing that's very neat about this model is that uh, our audience tends to pick things that we might not necessarily uh, mm. have expected them to. You know, the the South Sea bubble uh, was one of the first ones that won. Um, uh, we're gearing up to do the Mali Empire uh, fairly soon. We just did Genghis Khan. Um, it's, uh, well, it's still, in, it's still, it's still airing. So we, we do that. We'll, we'll do maybe one-offs or two-offs between them that that we'll choose because we feel like it, it fills some kind of need or hole uh, in uh, what we've, how we've portrayed history. Then there's the sponsored episodes. So someone like World of Tanks will come and say, hey, we would like you to do an episode mm -hmm. on the Christmas truce. Um, or uh, Dominations will come and, and, and say, we're, you know, a Cold War expansion is coming into our game. We, we would like to uh, have you do a few episodes on the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, which we we just put out a few weeks ago, um, so we we sort of have these two different ones. We have the sort of patron episodes, and then we have the uh, mm -hmm. sponsored episodes. So we uh, don't necessarily have the the greatest control over exactly what we are doing. Uh, it's mostly what mm -hmm. the audience wants. But luckily, we have a, a really neat audience who uh, likes to to pick topics that are a lot of fun and very interesting, and are frequently you know things they've not heard that much about is, is what they'd like to see. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's one of the the easiest things to recommend about the show is the fact that it doesn't pick the obvious topics. And to hear that that's the result of uh, audience voting, uh, patron voting, that's really incredible. Um, because you would assume with, you know, kind of a voting group that size that they would want kind of your uh, meat and potatoes, as we would call it. Uh, in a history survey class, they would want your, you know, kind of famous characters, George Washington, uh, and not necessarily 
Chinese uh, pirates, not necessarily Kamehameha, uh, not necessarily all these other uh, figures that you don't you don't really hear about uh, in textbooks. Right. And, you know, we 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 sort of shape it to a certain extent because, you know, we'll we'll come up with lists of topics and things like Kamehameha or um, Ching Yatso, uh, the pirate queen mm-hmm. that we just did. Those are uh, sort of interspersed like one off, two offs that 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 we choose, but frequently we take them from suggestions that did not get chosen. Mm. Um, or it's, you know, it might be that someone suggests a topic that we can't do five or six episodes about, you know, 40 minutes is a long time to talk about, uh, something. Uh, and it's, uh, particularly in the narrative history format we tend to, to use. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's, it's just great that people choose, you know, the bronze age collapse, uh, over, something more familiar and Mm -hmm. and we frequently found that that's that's what people want they want things they're not familiar with uh they'd like to learn something new yeah awesome uh and you know it's also interesting i mean you know the whole series extra history started with a sponsorship deal essentially from creative assembly uh with the punic wars episodes and so i'm wondering i mean what do you think of that this i mean because it's not it's not really traditional advertising in a way, and it's interesting that these game companies would kind of go out of their way to kind of promote history education and not necessarily try to push the game sales at the same time. What do you make of that? You know, I, I think it's a really cool thing. I, I think it's becoming more common uh, where you'll see Nike, um, for example, or, or uh, something like LifeProof will do a, a documentary that's about uh, rock climbing or something like that. And really the only appearance of the product there is is in branding or maybe they're using some of the equipment. Um, but, you know, we've we've always had this kind of thing where uh, I, I have a friend here in, in Hong Kong that uh, I, I live in Hong Kong uh, that's a photographer. And, you know, he constantly does assignments that are from like car companies that involve, you know, going out to some badlands somewhere and photographing these these cars driving around in a race, mm-hmm. and um, you know it's it's a it's an event, but it's at the same time advertising. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's a lot of, particularly the game space is really moving more towards the idea of social good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even even games that you could argue might trivialize, for example, warfare a little bit, like uh, Call of Duty. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I tend to think Call of Duty is actually a much more complex game series than people give it credit for. But, uh, you know, they have the Call of Duty Foundation, which which benefits veterans. And mm-hmm. uh, you have things like Extra Play, Desert Bus for Hope. So there's a, quite a lot of charity and public good activity that's coming out of the game space right now. And I think, you know, the also traditional advertising on the Internet is is I think we're learning that it doesn't necessarily work as well as it used to. Yeah. Um, and the idea of sort of holistic engagement of, hey, here's a game that you like or that you might be interested in. Here's how you can learn more about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, this is what I've been doing with Critical Intel through my entire career with it is to to say, hey, you really like um, Far Cry 4. Let's talk about the real cultural stuff in Nepal that this is portraying mm-hmm. and you know, if it doesn't portray it in a way that's accurate, I can straighten that out. Um, but, you know, it's great that there's a game that is making people want to learn more uh, mm-hmm. about the world. You yeah. know, there'd be no way I, I would be 
getting to go on a major website and writing about, you know, cultural and religious practices in Nepal if there hadn't been a video game about them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I feel the same way uh, when I do work on history respawn. Um, I'm not sure how many of my uh, scholarly colleagues would agree with that. But um, <laughs> uh, so you've given us the the background on you know how the topics for the series are determined, and I'm wondering you know after you get the topics selected, how do you go about researching for the episode? Well, I, I have a process that uh, begins with a sort of embarrassing step, which is I'll go find uh, as many like. History Channel or BBC documentaries, uh, and and I'll just watch them. And what I'm doing is I'm you know first of all just getting an idea of the event, uh, so that I sort of know where I am in time when I'm when I'm reading books about it. I can be a little more efficient. Um, but also, you know, I'm finding out what everyone thinks they know about that event, uh, what is portrayed, how it's portrayed, and. Uh, sort of get an idea of the popular consciousness about something. And then I'll go do deeper research in uh, using scholarly resources, books, uh, archives, if I can get to them. Um, I'm in Hong Kong, so English language resources are, are not always very easy to come by. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that way I can sort of get my own idea of how this should be portrayed and maybe focus on something that's a little bit different than what's in the, the popular imagination. One example is uh, when I did Hunting the Bismarck, I became fascinated and a little bit obsessed with this 30-hour stretch, where in, in, if you're watching most History Channel documentaries about the sinking of the Bismarck, uh, there's a point where the Bismarck disappears. The Royal Navy can't find where it is. And at that point, they cut to commercial, and then they come back, and there's a plane and it sees the Bismarck and they say the Bismarck has been missing for 30 hours. And uh, we spend almost an entire episode on those 30 hours and what was happening on the British side uh, at Bletchley Park with uh, the Enigma code machines trying to triangulate uh, German naval signals traffic in the Atlantic uh, with uh, Admiralty uh, strategists who are trying to game out different scenarios of where it might have gone and tell uh, the ships at sea where they need to be positioned um, and the political consequences with uh, with you know Churchill freaking out um, <laughs> about the fact that it may have escaped after sinking the the HMS hood so there's frequently a, a story behind the story that hasn't really been told yet and as far as I know we're the first, or at least as far as I've seen, we're the first documentary to have actually put those 30 hours on screen. Um, and to me, that's actually the most fascinating part of the story because it's it's high technology and it's um, the people on shore who are, are really scoring this this big victory rather than, uh, rather than the people who are on the firing line. Um, and it gives a little more of a holistic depiction of what uh, fighting a naval war is like and how technical it is. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, I, I mean, when you are when you're doing the research and you're, you're putting together these episodes, I mean, obviously, you know, you, you did say, you know, the combination of these episodes are sometimes 40 minutes long. Um, but, you know, even with 40 minutes, that does doesn't leave a lot of room, you know, for a lot of these topics. So, I mean, do you struggle at all with with leaving things out, cutting things? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, uh, if you talk to anyone who writes about history, they're, they're kind of haunted by ghosts from every projects of, of, of things that got cut out or mistakes that got left in or, you know, 
And I literally everything I've worked on, I could tell you, man, I, I really wish that we had left in uh, this one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I really wish that uh, in cutting the word count down, uh, because, you know, an, av- an average episode of Extra History, uh, the script is between about 14 and 1700 words. Mm. And 1700 words is really pushing it mm. um, because it's one of the things that I've had to learn about uh, about working in this field is that uh, when I was a kid, I, I, I really loved the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit mm-hmm. uh, to the point where when I was six or seven, I was watching interviews about making the movie. Um, and I remember Bob Hoskins talking about how, you know, whenever he grabbed an animated object, like when he was supposed to strangle Roger, he could never do it with open fingers because the animators would have to go through every frame <laughs> and draw Roger's neck between his fingers. Mm. And it would take, you know, hours and hours and hours. And uh, I really have to think about that when I'm when I'm writing, because I can just say, you know, there are uh, there's a fleet of, you know, 20 ships on the way to this this place. Well, the the artist then has to go and draw a fleet of 20 ships um, mm-hmm. and it costs me nothing but it, it costs them hours of their life uh, on a deadline mm-hmm. uh, so it's there's not just a economy of storytelling in the word count there's a visual economy of storytelling mm-hmm. um, and deciding oh do I really want to say that this um, Soviet helicopter regiment got deployed to Cuba because then we have to create the artist has to go and create a helicopter asset um, and then we never met again. <laughs> so, um, so that that's been uh, a learning process. And uh, but yeah, we we leave stuff out o- often, just be out of necessity. Well, I mean, you know, kind of following up on this. I mean, you've spent the past ten years or so as a games critic, and now you're transitioning to being a content producer. I mean, how does that make you feel? I mean, is it uh, something that you? A relish you're enjoying or is it something that's still taking a little while to get used to it's both um i i've always tried not to be too hard on uh game creators when i'm when i'm critiquing their work i've never reviewed um i'm really more of an, an analyst um and i've always tried to keep in mind that you know doing this is is difficult um and takes a lot of resources and time and things can happen behind the scenes that that uh, so unless something is very, very egregious, I, I try and give people the benefit of the doubt and, you know, not, uh, not, not try and decipher motives from an error or a certain perspective. Um, but you know, it's, it's definitely true that I'm, I'm in the hot seat now, you know, I'm on the yeah. other side of that. And one day I'm going to, when I've, when I've found them all, I'm going to write you know, the 23 ways to make a historical error, because there are so many, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's an error by omission, right? Like with the, uh, with the Bay of Pigs, there's an error by uh, not communicating well enough with your visual team. Um, there's an error in uh, finding an error, but you find it too late to fix it. Um, there's er- an error in uh, glossing over something in a way that the audience does not understand exactly what you mean, uh, or using wording that creates a, a different impression than you meant to. Mm-hmm. Um, there are just so many ways you can go wrong. And, uh, you know, 
for our mainline series, we have an episode at the end called Lies, uh, which is just sort of a, a straight-on camera. It's it's live action, where the writer talks about uh, all the mistakes they made in it, um, or things people brought up in the comments, you know, or things that they might have thought was a mistake but were not. Um, you know, one one thing we got a lot with Bismarck, uh, which we did not do a Lies episode for because it was sponsored. Uh, we did a little bit of a comment addressing some of them was like the idea that uh, when ships go down, they don't create suction. Uh, there was a Mythbusters episode on it where they stood on a 20 foot sailboat and knocked a hole in it and said, oh, we're not getting sucked when uh, when we when we go into the water, um, which is not, to my mind, an actual uh, a great interpretation of a, a sinking cruise ship or warship. But um but, you know, it's in it's true, like ships don't suck people down, quote unquote, but there is something called down flooding, which is when a large ship goes down really fast, uh, the water pours into all the empty spaces of it and it can take debris with it. You know, debris can entangle people and pull them down. And uh, though suction is not involved, there are many ways to get dragged under the water uh, when a large warship sinks. Um, so we'll address stuff like that pe that people think might be errors, but are actually not. Um, uh Another famous one was uh, the, the you know, not famous, famous in my mind, was uh, whether the hood fired a, a, a last uh, shot while it was going down. This was reported by uh, multiple people who saw it. It might not have been someone actually firing a shot. It was probably just some ammunition inside that cooked off that was already loaded or, or maybe just an internal explosion that vented through the barrel. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, there there are... But, you know, there are things that I cut out of that series because I thought they were too unbelievable. Um, you know, people who had shells pass by their head that, that you know, uh, so close that they, they shaved, you know, part of their scalp clean, you know, and mm. things like that, that I just went, well, maybe that happened, maybe it didn't, but nobody would believe it happened if I put it in there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 been very interesting in... Uh, because I'm still critiquing games in that I, every time I, it's, I'm still very much in that headspace where I, when I play a game, I'm always thinking about how it's portraying history and uh, what it could have done better. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of that, I mean, have you been playing any history games recently that you, you want to kind of talk about? You can, you can take this moment to jump back into the role of being a critic yeah, so I've I've been taking a little bit of a break actually. I've been uh, going and playing some games that didn't don't have anything to do with history or, or politics at all. But I have also been playing uh, Call of Duty World War II, um, which I've I've played and written about every Call of Duty that's that's come out since um, since hmm, prob probably modern modern warfare. I've I've written about every. History, or every every call, Modern call Warfare of Duty was oh seven I think two thousand oh seven so. and I wrote about it in yeah. retrospect but um, mm -hmm. and it's uh, it's been interesting you know I, I I wrote this episode for extra credits years ago uh, talking about specifically how uh, games might go about it when they went back to World War Two and it uh, I'm not going to say that they watched this episode but they clearly came to some of the same conclusions that that I did like that. Uh, a historical game about World War II is incomplete if you don't mention the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. You know, we had 30 years of games uh, about the Second World War where uh, the Holocaust was apparently not a thing that happened. You know, you didn't see a propaganda poster. You didn't see 
uh, a camp. And uh, now we're we're seeing games like Wolfenstein and uh, Call of Duty World War II that that try and address it uh, in some measure. I was very impressed that they put it in the game. Um, you know, I I think it was a, a fairly brave thing to do. Um, I would have rather they had, for example, showed a camp that had people in it. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are some things just about the gameplay that I think undercut it. Unfortunately, um, they try to do a lot of character building in firefights and kind of in the background. And I missed a whole lot of it, uh, Mm -hmm. because I was getting shot at and shooting at people and throwing (laughs) grenades and things like that. Uh, for example, there was a, um, a line of dialogue sort of near the end of the game where I realized that there was supposed to have been this sort of ongoing racial tension between uh, an African-American uh, combat engineer and one of the members of your squad. And the only reason I realized that was because there was sort of like a, hey, you, you're, you know, you're a great soldier and you're all right after all, kind of like line at the end. And I went, <laughs> oh, there's been there's been character growth while I was... Uh, well, while I was out on the flank and couldn't hear it happening, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I think there there are a, a few things like that. Like, it's it's difficult to tell in in that game when you're supposed to be following your squad like glue, and when you can go off on your own and just sort of explore. Um, mm-hmm. And as a result, I, I I missed a lot of the dialogue that had the the characters reacting to this this camp. Um, yeah, and I. I found it a little strange that it was sort of all tied back to this story about wrestling with uh, dire wolves in Texas in the 1930s, <laughs> which uh, part of part of my family is from the Panhandle, and uh, that I don't I don't quite remember wolves playing that great a maybe role. Coyotes. Yeah, maybe, maybe coyotes. Coyotes, coyotes not, for not sure. A, not, not um, a great wolf. But yeah, um, but I I think it had a lot of good intentions and things it was doing. I think it had some. Uh, I think probably its most effective moment was there's a mission where you have to go into a building that's being swept by German soldiers and try and rescue a, a little girl that's been left there. Mm, and one yeah. of the things that I've, I've regularly criticized uh, military games on is that they've, they've not uh, ever acknowledged the fact that there are civilians in these war zones. Um, and the actual setup of that mission was a little bit clumsy, in my opinion. Um, and the closing, I was not crazy about, but I was absolutely invested in the section where you actually have this little girl and you're sneaking around trying not to get captured. And I liked the fact that if you get caught, you're not shot, uh, Mm -hmm. that it says you've been captured, you know, you've, you've, you know, game over. Um, yeah, I I really liked the fact that, you know, you just get guns pointed at you and, you know, it's, it's off to the POW camp. Um, Mm -hmm. but I, I definitely felt the tension in that. And, uh, I thought that that section of it with the stealth section itself was, was quite well designed. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a resistance mission that I have to play a couple more times to, um, really settle how I feel about it. I think it has a lot of neat, uh, stuff in it. Uh, good, good mechanics, but it's, uh, I mean, it really is trying to ape, uh, inglorious bastards, I feel. Yes. Um, and it didn't really, it's, it's the first time you really are given dialogue options mm-hmm, and it, yeah. it didn't really preface it well enough because I 
didn't realize that, you know, one thing that you can do is ask around for this guy. And I thought that doing that action would immediately expose me because I, I thought that that was his code name, not his real name. Uh, or not, not his, not, yeah. So I, I had a very difficult time finding this guy because I was just going around to these officers and, you know, giving them yeah. this code phrase, thinking that was how I was supposed to, you know, that he was supposed to give me some kind of code phrase in return. And, you know, instead they're, they're just sort of confused why I'm quoting poetry to them. Um, uh, rather than just saying, Hey, where's, is, where's is this, where's this officer I need to find? Um, at which point they'd say, Oh, I think he's upstairs or downstairs or whatever. Um, so it was a very neat concept. Uh, I think the execution was not quite as, and it's also that I'm a very cautious player that my first playthrough, I will try to do absolutely every, everything to succeed on the first attempt. Uh, because that, that way it preserves the dramatic tension for me. The first time I die, uh, I, it becomes an experiment rather than my trying to stay alive. Um, mm. So that could just be as a result of my uh, kind of. You're the you're the dark souls of game players. Yeah, exactly. Right. I, I have my, my weird <laughs> hangups as a player in that uh, uh, the first time I die during a mission, I, I feel like the stakes are lowered a little bit. Uh, <laughs> so I was being super, super careful. Um, yeah. So I, I can't fully... Uh, say that as a positive or negative. I think it's very positive that they, they have incorporated that. Um, but yes, I agree. It definitely has a kind of inglorious bastards, um, feel to it. Uh, and yeah. I say that having liked that movie a lot. Um, yeah, I feel the same way. And, you know, I think, um, you know, like you said, it's the execution of world war two that I think really brings it down. The, the ideas that they have, the stealth mission, the Holocaust uh, epilogue at the end, which is the completion of the game, right? You you don't complete the game by going off on this uh, glorious liberation parade, right? Instead, mm -hmm. you you get to visit a Holocaust camp. You get to visit a concentration camp, um, and I think that that's a moment that could be could be incredibly moving. But like you said, I think it's kind of hamstrung by some of the execution that comes before it. But you know, like I've said all the time on History Respawn, is it's it's not so much the fact that these games, uh, whether or not they get it accurate or whether or not, you know they you know, they don't get it accurately, you know what it is is if the game is successful, right, and it does try to broach these topics, it might lead to further games, right, more games that'll do a better job with these sort of issues. And Call of Duty, like you said, making this kind of brave move to include the Holocaust, it might actually encourage other developers to make that same attempt. Um, and do it better. Uh, so, I mean, I think, and you know, the game sold incredibly well, uh, you know, easily the top selling game of last year. Or so, and, and you know, of course there's a lot of buzz right now that, uh, the battlefield series uh, is going to go back to world war two. So, you know, maybe we'll see the Holocaust there. Maybe we'll see, you know, a more diverse palette of characters, uh, in that game. Um, so I think, you know, despite the criticisms I have of it, you know, and listening to your valid criticism, I think that, you know, the game as a whole has done, uh, has been a net positive. Well, and I'll tell you something I like a lot about it. And I, it's something I would not, it's bizarre to say this, but it's something I would probably not have caught on to quite as much as a game journalist. Um, because, you know, one of the, one of the issues with being a game journalist, particularly a freelance game journalist, because you, you know, you're getting paid per article. Uh, is that you don't get to play something for a long time before you jump onto the next thing. 
Um, mm. So I have been extensively playing the multiplayer for Call of Duty World War II. It's the first time I've done that since World at War, you know, which I, 2011, 2010. Um, that sounds right. Yeah, so a long time. And uh, I really like the fact, and it's sort of bizarre to say this, but it has a loot box system. Mm -hmm. um, which overall, I am not crazy about loot box systems, but um, what's neat is that a lot of the items you're going after or trying to build up to um, are uniforms for resistance groups. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, the, the first specialty uniform I got was from the Italian resistance. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I really enjoy... The fact that people are getting introduced even in a small way and those are kind of the coolest looking ones so you'll see people run around dressed as like the dutch resistance and their their first right. dlc map pack uh had uh one of the maps is anthropoid which is playing off uh, operation anthropoid the um the effort to assassinate uh heinrich the the highest uh, highest ranking nazi official who was mm -hmm. um assassinated during the war by Czech resistance. Uh, so it's a Prague map. Um, and the, the Prague uprising is something that uh, ever since I've, I, I went to Prague a couple of years ago, I've, I've been a little bit, uh, a little bit obsessed with uh, because I'm, I was amazed that I had never heard about the fact that there was this enormous uprising at the end of the war. And it was one of the, mm -hmm. one of the few times a city sort of liberated itself. The only yeah. time. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just very neat that they're they're putting that sort of stuff in uh, and that it's a little more obscure. I was a little bit disappointed in that they, they had said, and I think this was just my expecting too much because of what something that had been mentioned was that you could play as soldiers from every nation in the conflict. And of course, I live in Hong Kong, so I immediately was like, great, my Chinese partisan is going to be awesome in this game. And uh, that turned it, it turned out they meant every nation in Europe, uh, uh, which I, I'm sure they'll roll out more like Norwegian, you know, resistance uniforms and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but I, it's funny. It's funny that was a criticism because, you know, historically and looking back at the very beginning of the Call of Duty series, it's it's one of the more remarkable World War Two series because it actually did have this concept of there being a wider world, right, in the sense that you had missions where you played as Russian soldiers on the Eastern Front, right, whereas previously you're either playing as the Nazis or you're playing as the Americans or maybe the British. Uh, so that's kind of a, that's kind of an interesting omission on the part of, uh, you know, the developers of Activision. Exactly. I'm assuming they're holding it for a sequel, which is uh, so. what, what I would hope. Um, but I, I, I would really like to see, and, you know, again, like, I do feel like this is an omission, but it's hard to say in a multiplayer game because it's it has a certain quality of persistence that it could be added later. I would really like them to uh, have Asian uh, uh, head models. You know, they have mm. African American ones. You you can be women sure. uh, in this sure. in this one, but you know, being from Hawaii, the first thing I thought was, oh well, I, I can't be a you know Chinese uh, partisan. All right, I'm going to be part of the 442nd. I'm going to have like yeah. a Japanese American, you know, avatar and uh, and and play as one of my friend's grandfathers, um, and, and you know, quickly found out that that, that wasn't going to happen. But mm. um, you know, it's a thing they could add later. Uh, yeah, we certainly saw that with Battlefield One, where where 
the French army yeah. was was not added until months after well, release. They were, they were DLC. They yeah. were they were promised as DLC. So was Russia. So yep, exactly. Um, yeah. So it's 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 been an interesting uh, sort of deeper dive in. But then also you you know you're the last time I logged on it was near St. Patrick's Day and the the headquarters beachhead sort of the beachhead uh, where you get together your multiplayer games and and you know open your loot boxes and stuff like that had a giant uh like had big sh- shamrock patches everywhere and like a, a pot of gold and like a rainbow and a giant beer stein in the middle of it so you're kind of going huh okay so now people yeah. are dressed with you know french resistance you know uh clothing and they've got you know like a, a green bowler hat on uh so <laughs> It, there's a little bit of a gonzo nature to it that I'm I, yeah. I'm a little bit I'm not wholly comfortable with. Yeah. You know, um, there is, you know, there's this thing and it happens all the time with historical video games. This is, you know, on the one hand, it is kind of promoting historical memory, historical knowledge, maybe even encouraging somebody to go to a library, for instance. Uh, but at the same time, it's still a video game. Right. So you get the shamrock. Uh, kind of uh, flair that you're talking about, but then also, you know, of course, this is a game that has a zombies mode right. in it, right? Um, so um, it's you, you get the uh, uh, you get the wine with the vinegar, I guess you could say. Yeah, and you know, I I I do really hope that it will it will inspire people to do more more research on their own. That's actually our our goal with extra history. Is we we always say, look, we're not a show that's going to give you a holistic, you know, we're, we're in no way telling the definitive version of any story we tell. You know, it's just the hope that this entertains you and educates you a little and gives you a place to start where you can do your own exploration. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, I admit that that is what happened with me. That's why I got interested in history is I, I watched Indiana Jones as a kid and I thought, wow, Egypt seems really cool. Um, and I went to my school library and checked out a bunch of books on Egypt. Um, or, you know, one of the reasons that we have this explosion of, you know, sort of cyclical World War II games is because of Saving Private Ryan um, and the interest it created. Um, I, in, in a really bizarre example, I, I have, so I have, a, I have a bunch of nephews and one of them is, is seven years old. And he is all of a sudden, just in the last few months, um, obsessed with D-Day. And mm. uh, he doesn't play video games. He's, he's not allowed. Um, but I guarantee what happened is that one of his kids at school has, one of his friends at school has an older brother who has been playing Call of Duty World War II and can't stop yeah. talking about D-Day. So it filtered down to his brother. And, you know, now my uh, my little nephew is... is very interested in in um hearing about this kind of stuff and and you know asking asking my sister you know what our family did and like and uh that's a little younger than i started but um (laughs) you know luckily his his uncle has to do with a animated historical documentary series that is is not going to be inappropriate for him to watch (laughs) And that's, you know, that's kind of the, the pitch that I make to scholars when I talk about coming on History Respawn is that, you know, when we talk about the future of historical memory, it's going to be something that is going to include games. So, you know, it's not going to be dominated by games, but 
games are going to play an important part of that. And, you know, for instance, when uh, a toddler uh, or uh, somebody, uh, you know, in elementary school in the future, when they have their first moment with history, it's probably going to come through a phone or a tablet game, right? It's not going to come through a book, right? So I feel like people like historians, people like uh, those of you running extra history, they need to be in that space in some way, shape or form. Yeah, I, I this summer I spoke at the Historical Novel Society and I uh, gave a presentation that was basically like in the age bracket of the historical novel society tends to be you know a, a bit older um they're generally yeah they're generally I don't believe not you i don't believe you rob yeah no. they're not the xbox live crowd <laughs> overall but um you know I, I i essentially just did a slideshow and said hey listen you know if you're writing a book about renaissance italy you need to know at the very least just read the wikipedia page on what happens in the Assassin's Creed series, because you're going yeah. to have a lot of younger readers that that's their frame of reference for it. Um, yeah. And you don't necessarily have to even play the game, but you just have to be aware of what's in it and maybe mm -hmm. how it portrays. Read a couple of articles. Um, you know, even something like uh, someone was writing about medieval Islam. And it's like, great, you need to do some work on Crusader Kings too. You know, yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's there's just so much out there that there's almost any topic that someone gave me. I played a game where I said, just tell me what your book is about and I'll tell you the game that, you know, you can play that portrays that that yeah. uh, that era. Um, so it's yeah, it's part of the environment. It's it's mm -hmm. it's it's in the air we breathe. I mean, there's no getting away from it. Uh, well, uh, that's going to do it for our episode today. Uh, Rob, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm.